Welcome to the CRISPR revolution. This is CRISPR Cuts, a podcast dedicated to the world of genome engineering. Take a break and join us as we guide conversations with an expert CRISPR cast about this cutting edge science. Hi everyone, welcome to CRISPR Cuts. Today we have Ryan Powell, founder and CEO of Indie Labs, joining us on our episode today. So Ryan, let's start with an introduction and you know about your educational background. Tell us how you got started. I got my bachelor's of science in mechanical engineering at what I think is the best university in the world, UC Santa Barbara. Partway through, I took an internship at a now publicly traded medical device company that three students started. It's supposed to last one summer, but I stayed for almost 18 months. From there, I read about stem cells and regenerative medicine along with the Stanford Biodesign book, which said disposable medical devices offer the best business case for recurring revenue and high margins. So the general idea at the time was regenerative medicine based on cells would have a lot of impact in the future and microfluidic devices would be used to manufacture these therapies. So that was 2010. I see. And then fast forward to your current role, which is CEO at Indie Labs. So tell us a little bit about what Indie Labs does and what was the inspiration behind the concept that started it? So Indie Labs is doing exactly that. We are developing a microfluidic device for processing cells. There's a lot of things that you can do with cells when you want to process them. You can culture them, you can separate them, you can lyse them, or you can do gene delivery where you stick stuff like CRISPR inside the cells. And so at Indie Labs, we're focused on the delivery part of the cell processing options. Yes, the idea came about because I was working on a cell separation technology where we were pushing cells through these tiny little post arrays. And it's kind of like a Plinko board where big cells would go one way and small cells would go the other way. So you could separate them. We want to push large volumes of fluid through these, these post arrays. So the question that came around was, what happens if we flow cells through a post array really fast? And the answer was, we poke tiny holes in the cell membrane, allowing for stuff like CRISPR to get in. But CRISPR didn't actually exist at that time. We used a membrane and permeable dye. So Indie Labs is basically taking that technology or that discovery, and now we are have developed it to where we're marketing it to Series A plus funded biotechnology companies and also pharmaceutical companies. Great. That is such an interesting concept. And what I find even more interesting is that your background is in engineering, and then you switched over to biology, and that has some similarities with our founder as well. Tell me what inspired you to move into biology and particularly into the topic of gene therapy delivery. So after undergrad, I went to Australia for a couple of weeks to go surfing, and then I ended up staying for about five years for grad school. And in grad school, I studied cell, these microfluidic devices for processing cells. Towards the end of grad school, I was accepted into this program called the New South Wales Health Medical Device Commercialization Training Program. A program funded by the state health department for professors and postdocs to get business training for medical device commercialization. And I was the only student in my cohort. So shortly after that, completing that program, Indie Bio made me an offer and gave me about 30 days to relocate from Sydney to San Francisco. Uh, it was a good offer, so here I am. But back to cell and gene therapy. So about the same time, there was this growing pile of clinical literature on T-cell immunotherapies called CAR-T that shows unprecedented patient outcomes relative to the standard of care and for patients without any options. So when determining how valuable a therapy is going to be, you need to look at the number of quality adjusted life years added relative to the standard of care. So approved therapies need to be safe and effective to get past the FDA. Commercially viable cell therapies need to add a lot of quality adjusted life years to receive reimbursement and insurance coverage. 
the idea was that we have these developed a skill set in processing cells with microfluidic devices, and now we need to pick kind of like a, an area to focus on in cell and gene. And then CAR-T within cell and gene therapy kind of had the best patient outcomes relative to the standard of care. So that's how we got inspired in that area. Great. I'm thinking a little bit about microfluidics and how they can be used for CRISPR delivery. I have two questions in that. One, in general, could you explain this concept of how one would use microfluidics in CRISPR delivery? And secondly, when was your introduction to CRISPR? Because you mentioned you started on this concept even before CRISPR, right? Yeah, sure. So let's take it back a step. Microfluidics is the manipulation of fluids with microscopic channels. So these are tiny little channels. They're about one-tenth to one-hundredth the thickness of the human hair. It's kind of like electrical circuit boards, but for fluids instead of copper wires and electricity. The reason we kind of got into microfluidics for CRISPR delivery was because microfluidics lends itself to precisely processing cells. Cells are also about one-tenth to one-one-hundredth the thickness of a human hair. So nobody's going to have much success with ex vivo CRISPR delivery using a drill press purchased at the hardware store. You need to be on the same length scales. That totally makes sense. I've been hearing a lot about gene therapies and most of them are ex vivo, but obviously there's a lot of talks going on about making in vivo gene therapies. So my question to you would be, are these microfluidic devices or is the concept in general applicable to in vivo therapies as well? So our devices are operated at eight to 10 fold atmospheric pressure or about 120 PSI gauge pressure. So we can't pump up a human to those pressures in vivo. So in vivos are kind of out for indie labs. There are some complementary companies like GenEdit working in this space though. I believe they've done pretty well. So in vivo is not for us, but other companies that have in vivo technologies are out there. I see. In general, in CRISPR labs, what people would normally use are either viral transduction methods or even electroporation, nucleofection. So could you talk a little bit about what is the advantage of your method compared to these other delivery techniques? Yeah, sure. So viral transduction and electroporation are kind of the two industry standards, particularly for kind of clinical and commercial workflows. Relative to them, so our technology is simple, scalable, and we can rapidly process clinically relevant volumes of T-cells with high yield and minimal perturbation of the T-cell state. So our tiny little 5 by 10 millimeter chip that's about the size of your pinky nail can process 30 million cells in less than 10 seconds. For viruses, if a company wants to go, like let's say Novartis wants to go develop their CAR-T, they are giving up hundreds of millions of dollars in royalties on therapeutic sales to just develop viruses for these clinical trials and commercial manufacturing. And then the, the lengths and timescales can be 18 to 24 months, and the viruses might not work afterwards. So for viruses, they're really expensive. They take a long time to develop. They also don't scale, so you can't treat lots of patients with viral transduction. And then there's a lot of hazards. So we have a BSL-2 lab in our facility, and we can't actually use viruses because it's not BSL-3. Electroporation is another technology that people are using. The problem with electroporation is cells don't like to be electrocuted. It changes the cell state, and there's a bunch of literature out there showing that when you then put electroporated cells back in the body, they don't work as well as ones that are, let's say, mechanically poor. The other advantage of us is it's just really simple. So each new material component or reagent that you add to any process needs to be rigorously tested in order to get past the FDA. We keep things really simple. We use implantable-grade materials, accredited designers, and GMP-grade reagents. You also want to maximize the number of therapies you make per unit time per square foot of manufacturing space. So our devices are small. We can make thousands per day with existing manufacturing workflow. From a comprehensive perspective, we kind of are the ideal technology for developing these T-cell immunotherapies. 
both on the engineering and manufacturing side, and then on the immunology and clinical side, because we have data showing the cell state is not perturbed or changed like it is with electroporation. That is really exciting. I love how this seemingly simple sounding concept can actually be so effective. And I'm really looking forward to see a lot of data. I've seen some in your recent bioarchive paper already, but yeah, we hope you get a lot more papers and move this technology forward faster. As I mentioned before, our Sindhiko also has this unique position of mixing in engineering with biology. And I was curious, do you think that's really becoming an essential feature for scaling to mix up engineering and biology? Or what would you think you've learned from working in both these fields? I think everything's always going to be multidisciplinary in the future. I mean, we're somewhere between like data science, engineering, biology, and uh, we recently got started with machine learning. So I think each field of study offers tools that makes it better to complete what is a very complicated puzzle. So for Synthigo and for us, so the more proficient you are at them or your team is, the more you can scale your productivity and solve complex problems. So for us with the bioarchive preprint you mentioned is we just got started on the data science and kind of machine learning side of things. With each experiment, there's probably like 150 different inputs or outputs that we measure, and there's a whole lot more that we should. And it's really difficult for just me or our team to sit there and look at how the numbers change over time with different parameters and what ones are the most important and what ones should we not spend time on. So when you do have kind of that proficiency between engineering, biology, and let's say data science, you are able to maximize the value of each experiment by doing the right one, the most valuable one first. You know, it's only going to get more disciplinary in the future and only become a more, a bigger requirement for companies like Synthigo and, and Indie Labs in the future. Right. Yeah, no, that totally makes sense. Since we are talking about big picture things, and I always like to insert in like a fun question into the podcast, I wanted to ask you, what does a day-to-day at Indie Labs look like for you? I mean, right now, barring the quarantine period, how does it, what would you normally do day-to-day? I'm still somewhere between the business and the lab, business side of things in the lab, and then we, from time to time, kind of investor stuff. So we'll do anything from high-speed imaging experiments where we're trying to take pictures of cells going through our chip with the camera that takes images at, let's say, 500,000 frames a second. Sometimes I'll do a little bit of code work. I'm not that great at it, though. I still kind of design and help optimize the chips. And then on the business side, it's just talking to as many pharma execs and biotech founders as possible to try and get our chips into their workflow. So it it varies every single day. And then you always want to make time for your team. So we always have our all hands in science meetings and and then kind of like an open office hours period where anyone can can talk about whatever they want. A little bit of everything. Yeah, that's what keeps it exciting, I guess. A little bit of everything. Great. So given your awesome technology, we would love to know what are the near future plans for Indie Labs? The ultimate goal has always been to get these chips into the manufacturing workflows so we can help treat as many patients as possible. There's a little bit of ambiguity here still, but we recently received some guidance from the FDA that no new clinical trials are required to transition over to our technology, which is really exciting. And then we started working with a major pharmaceutical company in our space that has some interesting plans to get our technology into their therapies. So we're treating a lot of patients and a lot sooner than, than we originally anticipated. That plus the recent guidance just means that we could be achieving our goals sooner than we thought, and it won't require as much work or no clinical trials. So I think this is a very great opportunity for myself and the the team at Indie Labs. Yeah, that does sound absolutely exciting. And 
we are going to be looking forward to hearing more about your work at nd labs and we'll all stay tuned for updates thank you so much for joining me on this episode today this was really informative i'm sure everyone now has learned a new method or a new technology about crispr delivery so thank you once again ryan okay thank you very much i really appreciate your time thanks for listening to crispr cuts I invite you to check out the Synthego blog, The Bench, for more great CRISPR content. Please send us any feedback you have by contacting us on Twitter. And if you want to join in as a guest on our podcast, email us at crispercuts at synthego.com. CRISPR Cuts is a scientific podcast by Synthego, produced by Kevin, Minu, and me, Bobby. Additional production by Resonate Recordings. Our cover art is by Jeff Merrick. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you soon.